So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 5. This will be a familiar passage to many of you, Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Uh, You can get on the Grace Church website. This passage has been preached on multiple times, so I don't plan to offer anything new in the way of insights this morning, except uh, that my heart would be for us to see this passage maybe in a fresh light, uh, maybe rekindle uh, in our heart uh, a fresh faith, a fresh love for Christ and, and love for his word. So uh, let, me, let me read Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. It says, When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death, please. Come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, If I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official. And he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing and entering in. He said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately, they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. Father, we pray that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart will be acceptable in your sight this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata was 17 years old when she and her sister were swimming in the Chesapeake Bay. And not aware of how shallow the water was, She dove in headfirst, hitting her head on the ocean floor, severing her spinal cord. Instantly, her life was changed. She would spend the rest of her life confined to a wheelchair as a quadriplegic. And if you've ever heard her testimony, you've heard her share about the despair and hopelessness she had in those first few years. In fact, all she wanted to do was die. And at one point, she prayed, if I can't die then show me how to live. And for the last five decades, that's exactly what Johnny Erickson Tata has done. God answered that prayer, and she's spent her entire life doing ministry, uh, traveling all over the world, ministering to people with disabilities. See, her testimony is one of faith and hope. And I think as we look at this passage in Mark's gospel, we'll see a similar story of faith and hope as we witness the intersection of a prominent religious leader 
an obscure outcast, and Jesus, the Son of God. So, if you like your plural noun propositions, which I know you do, I want to look at five observations from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43, that will strengthen our faith and give us a hope for the future. So we're going to look at the people. We're going to look at their problem. We're going to look at their posture. We're going to look at Jesus' pronouncement. And then we'll ask this so what question. We'll look at the point. What's the point of the passage? Uh, We are parachuting into you know, the, the middle of a gospel, and we're parachuting, parachuting into a narrative. And so I think it's helpful to set the context. We know that the Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark. Uh, most people agree that the Gospel of Mark was either the first gospel written or at the very least one of the earliest gospels uh, written. John Mark's mother was Mary. And if you remember Mary from Acts chapter 12, she had a home in Jerusalem And when Peter was miraculously broken out of prison, Peter went to Mary's house in Jerusalem. So the early church was meeting there. Mary must have been somebody prominent within the early church in Jerusalem. And that's where Peter meets John Mark. So John Mark is Mary's son. John Mark is also Barnabas's cousin. And we know from Acts chapter 15 that Paul, Barnabas, uh, John Mark were ministering together. There was a little spat, you remember this, between Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, because Paul wanted to go one way, and uh, Barnabas and John Mark wanted to go another, so they separated, and they were separated for a while, but then we know later on from the epistles that they were restored. Uh, Paul's relationship to John Mark was restored. Uh, Early church fathers also say that Mark was probably Peter's interpreter, and if you read the gospel of Mark, you'll see some similarities to the book of Peter. So some people suggest that Uh, Mark was Peter's interpreter, and that the gospel of Mark is probably an account of Peter's preaching. We know the book of Mark was written to Gentile Christians in Rome, uh, probably around the same time as Nero's persecution, and around the same time that Peter would have been killed, so maybe in the uh, AD 60s, sometime around there. And that's why you see some of the themes in the gospel of Mark have to do with persecution and suffering and discipleship and service. Uh, but there's also some themes in the Gospel of Mark on the issue of spiritual blindness. And I think it's one of the things that we'll see in this passage, specifically as it relates to the disciples. Uh, they just didn't quite get who Jesus was at this point. Now, the style of the Gospel is, is interesting. It's not, it's not a biographical account. It's not even a historical chronology Uh, the style of Mark is a story. It's a well-written, dramatic story. And the reason I say that is because Mark uses all of the elements of a good story, plot line. Uh, He's got antagonists and protagonists and emotions and imagery. And he uses these literary devices, and the Newhall study knows about this because we've talked about this. We call them the Markan sandwiches. These are a literary device that Mark uses in his gospel six or seven times to make a theological point. And when I say literary sandwich, you guys know what a sandwich is. You've got bread, stuff in the middle, bread. Well, this passage in Mark chapter 5 is one of those literary sandwiches. And and real simply, uh, you've got the introduction of Jairus, bread. In the middle, you have this woman who's bleeding. And then you have the resolution to her issue, And then the the last piece of bread is the resolution to Jairus' issue. So this is called an interpolation or a Markan sandwich, okay? There's six or seven of these in the book. Uh, We're going to do Mark chapter 5 this morning, and then depending on how this morning goes, and Brian wants me to come back and preach again, we'll probably do another uh, Markan sandwich. So uh, I'll do my best to try and explain this to you. But just, I want you to keep that in mind so that when you're reading through the gospel, Mark is very intentional about how he's structuring this. Okay? He's not just randomly and sort of willy-nilly uh, telling the story about Jesus. He's structuring this in a very specific way to make a very specific theological point. Uh, real simply, if you think of Mark as a play, there's three acts. Act 1 would be the first eight chapters. Chapters 1 through 8, Act 1, Mark's answering the question, who is Jesus? Okay? 
Who is this, who is this Jesus? Uh, the second act would be the second part of chapter 8 through chapter 10, uh, answering the question, how does he, I'm sorry, uh, what is the Messiah? What is the Messiah? And then in, in the final chapters, chapters 11 through 16, he answers the question, how does Jesus become the Messiah? And it's not until chapters 8 through 10 where you see the disciples finally start to figure out, okay, what does it mean to be the Messiah? Uh, it's, that, it's those interactions with Jesus and Peter where he tells Peter that I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be crucified on a cross, and I'm going to, I'm going to raise again on the third day. That's what it means to be the suffering servant, the Messiah. And the disciples didn't get it because they wanted the Messiah to be the conquering king who came in and overthrew Roman occupation. Everything that they had read in the Old Testament about the Messiah was this guy who's going to come in and do some work. And Jesus says, that's not what it's going to look like. Peter confronts Jesus. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This happens three times in chapters 8 through 10. And then I think the theme verse of Mark is in chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus says to them, uh, I did not come to serve but to be served and to give my life a ransom for many. That's what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And then chapters 11 through 16, it's uh, the triumphal entry, him coming into Jerusalem, his arrest, uh, false imprisonment, imprisonment, he gets beaten, crucified, hung on the cross, raises again, and then the book sort of ends abruptly. And I think it's intentional by Mark because he wants us to ask the same question who is Jesus? So by the time we get to chapter 5, Jesus has called the disciples. He's been sailing back and forth across the Sea of Galilee multiple times. Uh, chapter 1, we see multiple healings. A man with an unclean spirit, Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, 141, he cleanses a leper. And, then cha- and in chapter 2, we see the, the accounts of, of them dropping the paralytic down through the roof. Chapter 3, he heals a man on the Sabbath. And this is an important part of the book because this is the point where the Pharisees say, okay, this guy is blaspheming God. And this, it's, it says in chapter 3, verse 6, that they uh, conspired with the Herodians to destroy him. So when Jesus started healing on the Sabbath and gleaning in the wheat fields on the Sabbath, the religious leaders were not happy about this. In chapter 4, you've got the, the parables, where Jesus is using parables to explain the kingdom and salvation. And then look at chapter 4, verse 35, really quickly, because I think it's important uh, as we think about this passage. Chapter 4, starting in verse 35. So, so they're sailing back across the Sea of Galilee. They're in the boat. And it says, on that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, now pay attention to this, they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? So they call him teacher, which indicates that they still thought he was a rabbi. They were not at all at a place where they were ready to acknowledge him as Messiah. And then he says to them, after everything that I've done up to this point, all of the miracles, all of the healing, everything that you've seen me do, you still don't have enough faith to believe that I can hush the sea? He's kind of like, come on, guys. And then we come to this section in chapter 5. So the first couple verses of chapter 5, we see him do another miracle as he he casts out the demon and this demon-possessed man, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. And then we get to chapter 5, our section, verses 21 to 43. And it's why I've titled the message, Lessons on Faith. Because, I mean, there's a lot going on here, but part of what Jesus is doing is he's giving his disciples another opportunity to see him in his full display of his deity and his demonstration of power. They still did not get it. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? 
So now look at our verses, uh, 521. Let's start with the people. Who is this person, Jairus? When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus. Jairus was, the other gospels don't use his name. Mark uses his name. But here's what we know. We know Jairus was a prominent official. He was a synagogue ruler, synagogue official, which meant he had a a reputation in the community. Uh, A synagogue official would be the equivalent equivalent today of like the chairman of the board or the president of a board, okay? But it was even more involved than that. A synagogue official probably was responsible for financing and constructing the local synagogue. So he he would have been responsible for all of the oversight of the local synagogue. He would have been wealthy. He would have been respected. He would have been honored. He probably would have had an entourage of assistants. He would have been closely connected to the religious community of his day. But Jairus had a problem. He actually had a couple of problems. Specifically, his problem in this verse was that his daughter his 12-year-old daughter, and we know that she was 12 because at the end of this passage, Jesus says that she was 12 years old, or Mark says that she was 12 years old. His 12-year-old daughter is dying. And so what does Jairus do? Jairus goes to Jesus, falls at his feet, and implores him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. So stop for just a minute and try and imagine this scene, okay? Jesus had been in this fishing boat with his unbelieving disciples, uh, asleep at the front of the boat. There's probably stinky fish everywhere. Uh, He's tired. He gets out of the boat. They're back on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He gets off the boat. He's greeted by a crowd. Now, remember back in chapter 4 when he casts the demon out, sends it into the herd of pigs, the crowd on the Gentile side of the sea implored Jesus to leave because they were freaked out. So the crowd over there is saying, Jesus, you got to go. He comes to this side of the sea, and now there's a big crowd gathered again. And crowds are important in the Gospels. There's always a crowd when Jesus is around. And you have to, you have to sort of imagine this scene with me. It's, it's like if you've ever seen videos of Princess Diana or, you know, when, when the presidents, uh, like I remember when Barack Obama would take these random strolls through the city, there would always be a crowd and, and they would be following him and they would be interested in what's going on. And you never knew if, if they were there because they were supportive of him or if they were there because they were opposing him, but there was a crowd. So Jesus comes, he's, he's with this crowd, Jairus, who's this prominent synagogue official, comes up to the crowd, and you have to imagine the crowd being like, hey, it's, it's Jairus. Guys, like, make a way. Let Jairus come in. And Jairus falls down at Jesus' feet and implores him, Jesus, come, my daughter's dying. Now you say to yourself, okay, yeah, that, that, that seems normal. Here's the problem. It wasn't normal. It wasn't normal for a couple of reasons. One, back in chapter 3, verse 6, the religious leaders said, we need to destroy him. So if, if Jesus had enough of a reputation in this community that Jairus says, okay, I can go to him because maybe he can heal my daughter, then he would have also had the same reputation within the religious leaders to where he was accused of being a blasphemer. So now you've got this situation with Jairus, this synagogue official, who, you know, you, you can, if you're a parent, it's easier to imagine but I'm just, I'm, you know, as you read this passage, you're trying to, to just stop for a minute and think, okay, Jairus' 12-year-old daughter is home dying. As a synagogue official, he would have had access to the, to the greatest medicine, the greatest health care. There's probably doctors by her side. He's there by her side with his wife. And one of his, one of his assistants come into him and say, hey, Jesus, or, hey uh, Jairus, Jesus is here. And you can imagine this, you know, this is a, 
This is creative license here. This is me looking at the white spaces of Scripture saying, okay, it doesn't say this, uh, but I'm going to go chosen on this just a little bit. And I'm going I'm to take some creative license to think about what was, this, what was this interaction between, is Delphine Bates here? She would kill me if she knew that I was talking about chosen. What, what, she would, huh? What is this interaction between Jairus and his wife and his dying daughter? You can imagine them sitting by her bed. She's dying. The assistant comes in and says, hey, Jairus, Jesus is here. And his wife looking over at him saying, Jairus, you got to go. Like, <clears throat> we're, we're, at the, we're at the end of our ropes. She's dying. Like, we need help. And Jairus is saying, but, but honey, I mean, this is what I would be saying, but Trish, if I go out there, and if I approach Jesus, my entire reputation is on the line. Because there's Pharisees who are trying to kill him because he's a blasphemer. But what does he do? Verse 23, it says, he goes to her and he implores Jesus earnestly, my little daughters are at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so she will get well and live. And then verse 24, what does Jesus do? I love this. Jesus went off with him. So Jesus hears his plea, and he goes off with him. Okay, there's the bread on the Mark and sandwich. There's the bread. Now, Jairus has another problem, and it's this woman. It's this woman who interrupts. You can imagine Jairus's excitement. It's like, yes, I'm imploring Jesus to come. I know that he can heal. And Jesus is going with him. They're headed to his house. And this woman comes. Verse 25, a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. You think it's coincidence that Jairus' daughter was 12 years old and this woman had a hemorrhage for 12 years? It's no coincidence. This is inspired. This is God's word. Verse 26, it says, And she had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all but rather had grown worse. And she, after hearing about Jesus, came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touched his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? So they're headed to Jairus' house, And this woman, who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years, you think Jairus had a problem. This woman had a major problem. Okay, So so Jairus, this prominent man, wealthy, respected, honored, is interrupted by this woman who's obscure, poor, rejected, and ashamed. But not only that, she's unclean. She's defiled. She had been bleeding for 12 years. And if you read back in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Leviticus, chapter 15, there were very specific restrictions for a woman who was in this physical condition. She wasn't allowed to sit on anything. She wasn't allowed to touch anybody. She wasn't allowed to sleep on her bed without having to clean her bed. She wasn't allowed to worship And that was just for a period of seven days after her normal female biological cycle. This is a woman who had been bleeding constantly for 12 years. You want to talk about an outcast. This woman was an outcast. And what does she do? She she sneaks through the crowd, which meant that every single person that she touched became unclean. She defiled every single person she bumped into trying to get to touch Jesus. She'd been bleeding for 12 years, and the, the, I think Brian would kind of geek out about this a little bit, but if you look at the verbs in the original language, there are all these participles. When you read it here, it, it seems a little bit chunky, but if you, if you read it as the participles are written, it just basically says she was bleeding, she was suffering, she was spending all of her money, she was profiting nothing, she was getting worse, and then she was hearing about Jesus And so what does she do? She sneaks through this crowd 
and she touches him. And worst of all, it's, you know, she would have defiled the people that she touched, but she also would have defiled Jesus when she touched him. And she doesn't. In fact, the opposite is, tr- is true. Uh, Pastor John, in his commentary on this, he, he has a little bit of an explanation on uh, some of the treatment for this particular condition. He said in the Jewish Talmud, there were 11 possible remedies for her infirmity, which included prescriptions like placing the ashes of an ostrich egg in a cloth sack or carrying around a barley corn kernel procured from a female donkey. And there were all of these potions and oils that these doctors would try and use to to cure this disease. And she had given everything to try and be cured. So, So Mark sets up these two people and he contrasts them against each other. But what you see where they're similar is their posture when they approach Jesus. Jairus in verse 22 says that he came up to him and fell at his feet. He approaches from the front and falls at his feet. And then the woman in verse 33, it says she fell down before him, fearing and trembling, aware of what would happen to her. And she told him the whole truth. You see, you have these two people whose lives are worlds apart. And yet, they both fall at Jesus' feet. And that's really the, that's the Christian life. That's what faith looks like. If we surveyed this entire fellowship group this morning, we couldn't be more diverse in our lives. We couldn't be more diverse in, in our socioeconomic status. There may be people sitting in this room right now suffering from the very condition that this woman suffered from. I don't know. But here's what I do know. Here's what faith drives us to do. Faith drives us to fall down on our face before God, begging for his help. John Piper describes faith this way. He says, he says faith is emptiness looking out to Christ. Emptiness looking out to Christ. And that's exactly where Jairus and this woman would have been. Now look at Jesus's pronouncement. So we've looked at the people, we've looked at the problem, we've looked at their posture. Look at Jesus's pronouncement. He says to the woman, verse 30, immediately Jesus perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now you have to stop there for a minute and ask yourself, okay, did Jesus really know, did he really not know who touched his garments? Or what was he doing here? He says, and his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Brian takes questions, takes answers, asks questions. Why do you think Jesus publicly acknowledged this woman when he healed her? Because he very well could have just let her touch his cloak. Power coming out of him, she gets healed, and she goes off on her own. Why do you think Jesus publicly acknowledged her? Yes. Okay. Okay. What else? Jen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Th- think about, so as much as Jairus had a, a reputation within this community, imagine what the crowd thought when they saw this woman approaching. Jairus very well could have known who she was. And you've got to remember, Jairus is at a place where he's saying, listen, th- things were like, things were moving. 
I implore Jesus. He says, let's go. And then we get interrupted by this woman. And now they're in this situation where Jesus is addressing this woman. And we're going to find out here in just a few minutes, Jairus' daughter ends up dying as a result of it. So you can imagine his frustration. I have a feeling, though, Jairus probably knew who this woman was because of her reputation in the community. Right? She would have been known. She, she couldn't worship anymore because of her condition. She probably was, had a reputation with the physicians in the community. Maybe some of the same physicians who had treated her were now by Jairus' daughter's bedside. So, yeah, I, I think it has to do with the fact that Jesus not only wanted to save her, restore her physical condition, but he also wanted to restore her publicly. Because as a Jewish woman, the, the, the inability to go and worship, the inability to go and be with family, and to, to, to touch and to be affectionate and, and to do all of the things that would have been normal for her to do, Jesus says, no, I want to restore you to that full place. And he recognizes her publicly. But again, I titled my message, Lessons on Faith. You know, one of the things that we can't do is we can't, when we read a story like this, we can't skip over all the peripheral characters in this story. Like you have to stop and ask yourself, okay, what's the crowd doing there? And what are the disciples doing? What must the disciples be thinking? And later on in the story, when we get to Jairus going into the home and healing, you've got these uh, professional mourners that are there. And they're there uh, playing their flutes and mourning and crying and wailing because the daughter has died. And then Jesus comes and says, well, she hasn't died. She's asleep. And now all of a sudden, they, they start laughing at him. Like there's all these There's all these peripheral characters in the story that we as readers have to stop and just say, okay, what are these people here for? And I think this particular situation with the woman, Jesus is proving a point to his disciples and he's teaching them a lesson on faith. Now, let's continue the story. So so Jesus says in verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your affliction. What does he call her? Daughter. I love it. Daughter. She's, it shows Jesus' tenderness. She's a, you could maybe call her a, a daughter of Zion as a Jewish woman. She's a daughter. And What must Jairus be thinking in this moment? Jairus is like, Jesus, we were going to my house for my daughter, and now you call this woman daughter, and you fully restore her. Imagine his frustration. Imagine, you know, his his desperation has now probably moved to complete despair because he's worried about his daughter dying, and that's exactly what happens. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting, him, putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. So Jesus makes a pronouncement for this woman. He says, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be restored. And then he also makes a pronouncement for this man's daughter. Little girl, I say to you, get up. And so you have to ask yourself the question, What does this pronouncement hinge on? Spurgeon says this about the faith. He says, here's the marvel of it. Little as it was her knowledge, great as it was her unbelief, and astounding as it was her misconception of our Lord, yet her faith, because it was real faith, saved her. And that would have been true for both the woman who was hemorrhaging 
and both Jairus. And what I love about this, the simplicity of the faith, the the lesson of faith, is that neither of these individuals, Jairus or the woman, they didn't have a full understanding of who Jesus was. They didn't understand penal substitutionary atonement. They didn't understand all of the five solas. They didn't understand dispensationalism versus covenantalism. They didn't understand that. All they knew is that Jesus was God. And they knew that if they went to him and fell on their face before him, that he would heal them. So now we have to ask ourselves, okay, what's the point? What's the point of this passage? Anytime we read a narrative, you always have to ask yourself, what does the narrative teach us about God? And that's where uh, this gets to be a little more interactive. Uh, There is a very specific theological point to this passage. And as I was describing the structure, the sandwich, we saw Jairus is the bread, the healing of the woman, the meat and cheese. And then we saw the resolution of Jairus' situation, the healing of his daughter, the last piece of bread. In the middle, I think you could argue, is the theological point. So I'll just throw it out to you guys. What's the point of this passage? What are the takeaways? What are the, what are the implications or What are the applications for us as believers when we read a passage like this? What do we do with it? We say, so what? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, like it. Jesus is no respecter of persons. Yeah, Jesus' compassion demonstrated here from the time that he gets out of the boat. I mean, imagine how bugged he could have been, or if it were us, how bugged we would be by constantly having these crowds pushing against us and asking questions. And sometimes the crowds were mocking him, saying you have to go. And sometimes the crowds were were there because they wanted to see him perform a miracle. But you see Jesus' compassion. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's... When you read a passage like this, especially when we believe that the sign gifts have ceased, which we do, and there's good reason for that, you do stop and ask yourself, okay, why no miracles today? And maybe there's, there's somebody in this room right now who has been begging God for a miracle. Maybe for yourself or maybe on behalf of somebody else. Why no miracles today? But what you just said is exactly right. Every time, <clears throat> every time somebody reaches out and touches Jesus in faith and gets saved, that's a miracle. That's a miracle every single time. And we never, want to, we never want to underestimate that. And so the natural, the natural question when you, when you teach on a passage like this is to, to, to ask everybody sitting here, have you reached out and touched Jesus in faith? Have you demonstrated the same posture that Jairus and this woman demonstrated? Have you fallen on your face before God? And what does it say about the woman? It's interesting here. It doesn't just say that she falls on her feet. It says... Where is it? Yeah, verse 33. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him, It could stop there. It doesn't. But it says, and she told him the whole truth. It says something about our confession. It says something about our willingness to get all of our sin out on the table before God and let him deal with it. Now, she had to tell him the whole truth because this is an eyewitness account. If if Peter, who was there, and John Mark as Peter's interpreter, 
if Peter hadn't been there and she hadn't told the whole truth, then we wouldn't have known that she had spent all of her money and gone through all of this to get saved, right? So part of this is her explaining to Jesus, here's what happened. Peter telling Mark, hey, this is what she said happened. Mark, write it down so we can read it now. So there's eyewitness account, which I love. It, 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 it addresses the, the perspicuity of scripture, why we trust it, because there was eyewitness account. But it also addresses her willingness to get it all out on the table before God. That's, that's David in Psalm 51, right? I've sinned against you and you alone. And it's, it's his willingness to get it all out on the table before God. What else? He's compassionate. It's a miracle every time somebody reaches out to Jesus. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Um, John Murray, uh, John Murray, a, a pastor, has a quote here. I, I wrote it down, and I, and I didn't share it, but I think it speaks to what you just said. He says this, Faith, as slender as one strand of a spider's web, there the fullness of redeeming grace is active. It just takes a tiny little thread, and yet it is so powerful that it, it causes the redeeming grace of Christ to be active on our behalf. Yeah. Say it again. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's the, that's the piper. That faith is emptiness reaching out to Christ. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love it. Although I would say this, it wasn't his power that saved her. It was his power that healed her. It was her faith that saved her. Yeah. What else? What other points? What about, what about Jesus being, I wrote this down, Jesus being Interruptible. Think about all the times throughout the Gospels where Jesus is interrupted by somebody. He, he, from the time in the Gospels that he gets baptized, even his baptism, we talked about this in the New Hall Bible study. Uh, when Jesus was baptized, it, it wasn't like it was in this, you know, purified bathtub in the temple. Jesus was down with the people in the muddy water getting baptized. And then he spends his whole ministry being interrupted over and over again by people who had needs. And then in this particular passage, he gets interrupted by the woman. And he tells Jairus, Jairus, don't don't worry about it. Just, Just believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Let me ask you this. Uh, Who do you identify with in this story? I said earlier, you know, we've, we've focused on a few of the people. We focused on Jairus, the woman. We talked a little bit about the disciples. But who, who, who do you identify with? Are you like the crowds? There's 8,000 people that show up here on Sunday morning. You think every single one of them are here because they want to closely identify with Jesus Christ? Or you think there might be some people here who have different motives? here for the entertainment, here for the the good choir. Who do you identify with? I think we probably need to be more willing to identify with the crowds than we are. 
Because the crowds are the ones who are laughing and taking offense at who Christ is. What about the disciples? Up to this point, the disciples still didn't get it. I mean, Peter, Peter in verse 37, Peter, James, and John go with Jesus. Peter had watched his mother-in-law get healed back in chapter 3. And he'd watched multiple miracles and he still didn't get it. Maybe you're the woman. Maybe you're here this morning and you have an incurable disease that you've been begging God to heal. Or you're Jairus and you have a child or a family member or somebody that you've been pleading with God for him to heal. I don't know, but when you read a narrative like this, you have to stop and ask yourself the question, who do I identify with? I wrote this down. Faith is not defined by detached curiosity. Faith's not defined by detached curiosity. Uh, What else? What other points of application? Paulo. It's that simple. Stop being afraid, just believe. I mean, especially over the last couple of years, how much we've spent, how much of our lives we've spent in fear. Yep. What else? Jamie. I mean, the, the, the way Jesus related to the people was all throughout the Gospels was incredible. Uh, yeah, Kelly. Uh, that Jesus is the source of life. So in both of these cases, they were coming seeking life. You know, the hemorrhaging woman seeking better life, and the little girl eventually seeking actual life. So it, it just reminded me of like that verse that talks about, I came that you might have. Yeah, yeah, I, I like it. And, and, that, and that, that's, that's the truth for us. So, you know, I call this lessons on faith. It is a lesson on faith for the disciples. It's a lesson on faith for us who are believers. But I don't know that everybody in this room has reached out and touched Christ in faith. And so the only, the only plea that I could give to you if you're sitting here this morning, if you, you've never accepted Christ, is, is laid out here. Fall on your face before God. Tell him the truth. Tell him who you are. Tell him how wicked your heart is. And you can have full confidence that he'll do just what Kelly said. He'll give you life and life abundantly. And the complexity, right? How, how difficult she made it for 12 years. And we do the same thing. We're trying to figure it out on our own. Yeah. If we turn to the one, can have faith in him. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so good. She went through everything. Every doctor spent all of her money, did everything she could to try and be cured, did the donkey dung, did the oils. No offense to those of you who probably at this very moment have essential oils in your purse. <laughs> Little lavender behind the ear. Okay, I just offended a bunch of women. Go ahead. Or, I don't know, guys, if you have essential oils, I mean, that's a problem. What's, go ahead. I think it, uh, it also goes to show how God sovereignly ordains 
properly so that you can have that point of desperation in order to cry out to your Lord. Um, because you do see how the disciples had been following him in his ministry, walking with him and seeing the miracles that he had done. But it's it's God's sovereignty and putting us in a position that's going to result in us crying out to him. Yeah. And, and um, I think that's evident in this story. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Uh, okay, look at verse 42, and we'll, we'll wrap it up here. Thanks for, thanks for being willing to interact on some of these things. Uh, verse 42 says, after the girl is healed, immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given to her to eat. Now, maybe they gave her a sandwich. Maybe they gave her a Markin sandwich. I stole that from somebody. Uh, the reason I love the ending of this, and it goes back to what you just said here earlier. <clears throat> I mean, I think about Johnny Erickson Tata. There's a, a video where somebody asked her the question, aren't, aren't you excited to have your resurrected body? And she says, of course. I can't wait to get my resurrected body so I can run and jump and, and do all of the things that I couldn't do in this life. But she said, even more than that, I'm excited to be with my Savior. And, and that should be the excitement that we have. And that's why my propositional statement said it should grow our faith and give us hope for the future. Uh, that wasn't just... Uh, the reason I love the ending of this passage is because it says right there, little girl, I say to you, get up. And for all of those who have placed our faith in Christ, that's the hope that we have that Jesus will one day give us resurrected bodies and he will say to every single one of us, get up, arise. I love the hymn, modern hymn that says, let every effort of our life display the matchless work of Christ. Make us a living sacrifice be glorified today. And that's my prayer for us. So let's pray. Father, we love you. We come before you this morning in full and complete and utter dependence upon the new mercy that you afford us. We need it. We can't live without it. And I just beg you that you would increase our faith Give us that faith as slender as a spider's web. For anyone here this morning who has not put their faith in you, I pray that they would do just what the woman did. Reach out and touch you and fall at your feet and beg you for forgiveness and accept the free gift of grace. We love you. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word together this morning. Thank you for this fellowship group, and what a sweet blessing it is to all of us. We commit our day to you. We pray that communion would also be a sweet time for us to reflect on our relationship with you. Help us to not go into that time with any sin that we're holding. Help us to keep short accounts. And we ask all of this so that you might be glorified in Christ's name. Amen.